Ecclesiastes 7, starting at verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I test by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more better, bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says a teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Who is like the wise? Who knows explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Thanks so much, Andy. And there are times when we come to God's word and um, it's hard to understand. And there's times when we come to God's word and it's hard to do what it's telling us to do. And there's times when it's hard to understand and hard to do what it's telling us to do. And I think this is probably one of those times. Um, so let's, let me pray and let me ask for God's help as we, as we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the opportunity to, to gather together to look at your word now. And, and Father, we, we need your help. We pray by your spirit, you would speak to us. We pray by your spirit, you would help us to understand these words. And that you would help our hearts to respond in the right way to them too. So please, Father. As the psalmist says, teach us to, to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, that, that's, that's our prayer, Father. Please would you humble us. Please would you reveal your greatness and your goodness to us. Please would you reveal to us just how weak we, we are, how much we need you. And please show us how completely 
sufficiently you meet our greatest need. So, Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Are you living your life forward or backward? That's a pretty odd question to to be asking, isn't it? Um, Are you living your life forward or backward? At the start of his book on Ecclesiastes, um, David Gibson, uh, the the writer of of his book, that's the question that he poses. He says, left to our own devices, we tend, as human beings, to live life forward. One day follows the next, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. We don't know the future, but, but we plan, we hope, we dream of where we will be, of, of what we will be doing, of who we will be doing it with. We, we tend, as human beings, to live forward. But the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us to, to live life backward. To take the one certain thing in our future, our death, and to work backward from that point. To filter all of the the details and decisions and heartaches and joys and to think about all of them through the perspective of the end. If we know for sure where we're headed, we know what we need to do before we get there. And Ecclesiastes wants to persuade us that it's only by preparing to die that we can learn to really live. Two weeks ago, Adam was was preaching on the first half of, of this chapter, and that's what we saw, wasn't it? This week, we're back to a familiar theme for the preacher, wisdom, and specifically wisdom and right living. But this time, he's got something slightly different to say about wisdom. This time, he wants to show the limitations of wisdom and righteousness and and right living. And again, he wants to call us to face up to reality instead of seeking to escape from it. So he wants to to show us the limits of, of wisdom and right living, and he wants us to face up to reality that's the kind of two headings we're going to go through as we uh, as we uh, as we go through this chapter so first up he wants us to see the limits of wisdom and right living now it's fair to say chapter 7 here in ecclesiastes is a bit of a departure from how wisdom is is uh, talked about in other bits of the old testament Um, In the book of Proverbs, for example, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Songs are are wisdom literature in the Bible. And in the book of Proverbs, consistently, as as you go through these these lists, these uh, various sayings, 140 characters and all those like tweets as they as they go through the book of Proverbs, as, as as you go through, generally speaking, when you live wisely, when you live well. Life goes well for you. Uh, Proverbs is not to be read as a sort of mathematical formula to to follow and do this, 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 and then, bam, this will be the result. But generally speaking, as you read through the book of Proverbs, all those individual Proverbs, making wise choices, 
living well the way God wants will be good for you, generally speaking, most of the time. But here in Ecclesiastes 7, the preacher wants to show us that whilst wisdom is an excellent thing, it it has its limitations. And actually, he has some puzzling things to say about wisdom. I don't know if uh, what you made of verse 16, as um, Andy read it to us earlier. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 16. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Puzzling. What? I mean, you can totally understand verse 17. Don't be over-wicked and don't be a fool. Yeah, that, that's pretty straightforward. But verse 16, don't be over-righteous. How is being over-righteous, over-wise, how's that a bad thing? What's the problem that underlying here that, that the preacher's driving at? Well, I think it comes back to control. The issue of control. Wisdom can be attractive to us as it appears to offer us control over life. So we can tend to to think to ourselves that the wise and so therefore righteous, right living person, they can guarantee for themselves divine blessings, long life, wealth and happiness by their wise and righteous living. But just think about that for a second. Does, does, Does something jar as as we think about that because what you're doing in that way of thinking is pursuing wisdom and righteousness right living for your own profit you're you're serving yourself and not god if you take it to its extremes you're trying to manipulate god force his hand to try and take control of your life and your future yourself and actually, if that's, if that's really what's going on, if that's our, our motivations as we, as we pursue those things, you're in no better position than the person who just goes the verse 17 route of, of wickedness and, and foolishness. Well, the preacher has, has two things to say to us here, to give us a reality check about our own wisdom and our own pursuing after right living. The first thing he wants to say is that they offer no guarantees for the future. Have a look at verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. It's striking, isn't it? The righteous perishing and the wicked living long and and prospering. Why is it that the drug dealers get the Lamborghinis? Isn't that the cry we see so often in the book of Psalms? Perhaps not in those exact terms, I grant you that. Possessing wisdom may make you more powerful than ten rulers in a city, as verse 19 tells us. But actually it's no guarantee of of a happy and prosperous future. Because that is outside of your control. Right living, righteousness doesn't guarantee you anything. 
the preacher tells us. And whilst these things in their purest sense are good, noble, excellent things, they are limited. There's no guarantees. But more than that, secondly, they are unobtainable. Unobtainable. That's his, his verdict as he goes on through this chapter, verses 23 and 24. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I'm determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? The preacher has spent a lifetime trying to pursue wisdom, determined to be wise. But, but his verdict, it's beyond him. Who can discover it, he says. And as for righteousness, right living, did you notice verse 20? Uh, as, we, as we read through earlier, verse, chapter 7, verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. It's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? No one. Verse 29. This only I have found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. This is his verdict. No one is righteous. No one does what is right and never sins. This is the reality check that we need if we're tempted to go down the route of thinking that our our right living and our wisdom are somehow a key to unlock our, our way into God's good books. We can't manipulate God. We can't force his hand. We are not in control. Instead, we need to face up to reality. And that begins with a right view of God. A right view of God. Have a look at uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Consider. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Those verses really put us in our place, don't they? God is the awesome creator and sustainer of this entire universe. He is the one who is in total control of everything. Not me, not you. And we can't manipulate him into doing anything. Not by our wisdom or our, our, our right living the preacher urges us to consider him consider him actively pay attention to who he is what he has done what he is doing and i wonder is that a part of the regular rhythms in in your life in the busyness of your life if you're anything like me, everything in our lives is screaming for our attention all the time. Everything is wanting us to, to focus elsewhere on, on, on anything and, and, and everything. 
But where are you paying your attention? Are you actively considering who God is, what he's done, what he's doing? So the preacher wants us to face up to reality and that begins with with a right view of God and it continues with a right view of ourselves. Verse 20 again, indeed there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. We've touched on this already, haven't we? It's it's pretty all-encompassing. No one does what is right and never sins. We need to, to stop being delusional and, and, and face up to the reality that the Bible sets before us, the reality of, of what we're really like. And we need to have a right view of the sinfulness of, of sin. Actually, the, the last few verses of this chapter are pretty difficult to, to get our heads round. And at first glance, they, they seem pretty problematic to us as well, to say the least. Is he being pretty anti-women in, in what he's saying in these verses? I mean, what's, what's the deal here? Well, we need to, to read carefully and not jump to, too quickly to conclusions. And we need to, to weigh what's here by what's in the rest of Scripture as well. But first of all, I want you to notice, verse 26, that the preacher writing here doesn't describe every woman or all of womankind. In verse 26, he has in mind one particular kind of woman. One uh, woman with a particular condition of, of heart, whether temporarily or, or as a way of life, she's using her body and her sexuality to get the notice of a man and, and to trap him. But secondly, notice that men aren't excluded here either. Whilst we might have wished that the preacher had said explicitly, some men behave in exactly the same way too. He, he doesn't do that. But he does show how some particular men, again, not all of mankind, have hearts that are taken in and seduced by, uh, by this kind of woman. Verse 26, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. It's really strong language, isn't it? He's not pulling his punches here at all. And actually, this is the opposite of love, isn't it? This is mutual misuse driven by lust that just damages the preacher is, is very real about the consequences of, of sexual sin. Our world does whatever it can sometimes, it seems to me, to escape those, those realities and to, to, to not get into it. But there are real warnings for us here. I wonder, is this a warning that you are taking seriously? There's no 
place for pride or arrogance or, or hubris about, uh, about this stuff. It's strong stuff, isn't it? The preacher goes on to talk about his very limited sample group. Did you notice that? Uh, one out of a thousand men is upright. And, and none of a thousand women are. I'd be lying if I was to tell, it, to tell you that I knew exactly what the, that was all about. But we know from the rest of scripture that God is not a misogynist. We know from the rest of scripture men and women are created equal. Different, distinct from one another, but equal in worth, in dignity, in value. And verses like this, tragically, have been used to justify horrific abuses against women in history. And we have to call that out. As some suggest that um, uh, perhaps it, it's Solomon who's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. Some p- suggest perhaps the preacher is channeling Solomon in some ways. And King Solomon, as, as you may know from from uh, the history books in in the Old Testament, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Um, Not porcupines, as um, it's one of those funny moments in in Sunday school when you're trying to, yeah, it's a completely different animal. Um, So do the math, 700, 300, 1,000. We don't know for sure what's, what's in the preacher's mind as, as he talks about his, these random sample groups. But we do know from the context here, the point that he's making is that there is no one, there is no one without sin. There is, and that sin has, has serious consequences and needs to be, uh, and those consequences need to be... Um, faced up to there's no place for any self-righteousness when it comes to this verse 29 again this only have i I have i found god created mankind upright but they have gone in search of many schemes this is the ultimate reality that, that we need to face up to we were created good right But we left God's good purposes in search of anything and everything instead. We can't fool ourselves into thinking our wisdom or or our right living can bring any semblance of control into our lives and our futures. We, We can't manipulate God. God is God and we are not. And we need to face up to the realities of who God is and what we are really like. That's what it means to, to, to fear God. And that's what the preacher calls us to at various points throughout this book, culminating in, in chapter 12 and verse 13. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. That's what he's driving towards. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? We need to jump to the New Testament, to a story that the Lord Jesus told to help us get our heads around this. Uh, 
I don't know about you, but as we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm, I'm right with him uh, as he's describing the reality of, of what culture is like today. But so often I'm left thinking, what, what's the hope? What's the answer? What, where's the, where do I go from here? It's, it's aching towards a fulfillment and a, a hope and a, and a saviour. And so let's turn to the New Testament. Let's turn to the Lord Jesus, our wisdom, our righteousness. Jesus told a story of, of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One of them a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. In Luke 18, verse 11 and 12. This is what Jesus said. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I wonder if you can picture this guy, the the scene in the temple, in, in your mind's eye. What an extraordinary prayer. He's not there to worship God, is he? He's there to worship himself. Now, I wonder if you were trying to describe him, what words you might use. I'd imagine arrogant is probably fairly near the top of your list. God, aren't you glad that I'm on your team? That's what he's announcing um, in the temple that day. Here's a supreme example of someone serving themselves, not God. Trying to manipulate God via his right living and, and his over-righteousness. Now the Pharisees at the time of Jesus were morally upright guys who were experts in the law. They would tithe, they would give um, a tenth of everything they had, even down to the spices growing in their gardens. They'd get their... That's how meticulous they were in their devotion to the law. But not out of service and love for God out of a service and love to themselves the contrast couldn't be greater between this guy and the other man in Jesus's story have a look at verse 13 Luke 18:13 the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Socially, morally, this guy is is a million miles from the Pharisee, isn't he? The tax collectors at the time worked for the occupying forces, the enemy, the, the Romans. And if that wasn't bad enough... Tax collectors were known for for taking more than the Romans demanded and skimming it off the top for themselves. And so this this tax collector enters, but can't even bring himself to look upwards. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What's he understood about himself? What's he understood about God? Which of the two is the one who truly fears God? Which of the two are you most like? 
where Jesus finishes his story. Verse 14 of chapter 18. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As Jesus said these words, he he knew that that, that justification, being declared to be innocent, is only possible because of what he was going to go and do on the cross. For the preacher in, in Ecclesiastes 7, for us today, left, left to our own devices, left to ourselves, righteousness is unobtainable. It's, it's out of reach for us. We are dead in our sins. But the good news for, for, for us today, living this side of the cross, is that all we need do is to come to our senses. All we need to do is echo the prayer of this tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have that right view of who God is. Have that right view of, of ourselves. And in humility, just ask for forgiveness. And we can be justified. It's one of those great Bible words, isn't it? Declared to be innocent. It's, it's courtroom language. The idea is of um, the verdict of, the, of, of a judge. Innocent. Just as if never sinned. Somehow. Uh, some people talk about it. And how transforming that truth is. Think of that tax collector going in with the weight the guilt, the shame of, of his sin, but leaving justified, forgiven, cleansed, washed, free. That's the glorious news of, of the gospel. That's what seems to be just sort of out, out of reach. In Ecclesiastes, but it's what we see in the Lord Jesus, our wisdom, our righteousness. Well, let me pray. I'm going to read some verses from Romans that pick up on some of these themes. And some words from a hymn as well. Let's, let's pray. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, how we, we thank you for, that, for those glorious verses, those glorious truths. Thank you for the full and free forgiveness that is ours. Thank you that we can be declared innocent, justified. Not because of anything about us, not because of anything that we do or have done but all because of your grace, your mercy, 
your initiative. All we bring is our sin. How we thank you for the cross. How we thank you for the Lord Jesus. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a couple of uh, questions that are going to come up on the screen. Feel free to use them or, or not, but um, perhaps chat to people around you um, for a few minutes about those things. And then uh, Ed will, will come back. The band are going to come up.